Good morning. Am I loud? I'm loud. Well, that's y'all's problem, not mine. Um, my name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Uh, I hope that y'all are doing well. It's a joy to be up here preaching and teaching God's word to you. Uh, this morning, we're going to be starting a new series in uh, the book of Jude. It's a very, very, very short book in the New Testament. Uh, it's only 25 verses. It's located all the way in the back, right before Revelation. Everybody knows where Revelation's at. And so uh, it should be the page just before Revelation. While you're doing that, I got a couple of things for you, a couple of updates uh, in addition to what uh, Everett just uh, said on the video. The first one is regarding prayer night. And so uh, Everett mentioned that prayer night this week is going to be uh, on Wednesday. However, due to some challenging scheduling uh, issues, we're actually rescheduling prayer night for the 28th. So that is a week from this Wednesday, October 28th. Everything else stays the same, the time and all that. So if you have signed up for a prayer night, um, just make sure you update your calendar and move it to the 28th. If you have not signed up for prayer night, which I would encourage you to do so, it is led by Eric Reina, who is our uh, liturgy director, and he leads us to worship God in prayer and at the same time teaches us the value of spiritual disciplines, particularly the discipline of silence and solitude. So I highly recommend it. You should definitely sign up once again for Wednesday, October 28th. In addition to that, if you are new or you've just joined us for a while, uh, welcome. And uh, as you exit later on today, there's this connect desk with connect cards. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to hook you up with answers to questions that you may have. Fill one out or talk to Christina. She will be at that table later this morning. So with all that being said, I'd love to just walk into our time this morning, if that's cool with y'all. So this morning, as I mentioned, we're beginning this new series in the Epistle of Jude. It's, it's small, it's short, I should say. It's only a 25-verse letter written to the early church. And as I mentioned, if you just got here, we're going to find it at the back or the back end of the New Testament just before Revelation. And I just want to let you know right now, this letter may be short, but it is stout and it packs a serious punch when it comes to addressing the church on matters matters of conflict within the church herself. In a moment, I'm going to give you a brief introduction to who Jude is and why Jude is writing to the church. However, for now, I think it's important to speak on why we are preaching through Jude, and I want to offer you one reason with two parts. I believe that it is important and necessary to preach through Jude because one of the central or core themes of this letter is contending for our faith. You'll notice the graphic behind me done by our very own Everett and uh, you see some boxing gloves. You see the icon on there. To contend means that you're going to put up a fight. You're going to go on the offense and we're going to talk more about that as we get into the letter. 
The reason I say this, the reason I think it's important to say this is because the church, especially Storehouse McAllen, needs to be equipped in the teachings of Scripture and informed about what's going on in the culture around us if we are to contend accurately and appropriately. That is, go on the offense to speak into people's lives, to correct one another, to rebuke others. It's important for us to contend and know how to contend for the faith, for the faith that we stand upon, the faith that we claim to stand upon. It is important to contend for it. Right now, the church as a whole, we could say the American church, is weak. There are Christians who are simply theologically weak, and this might be you. I, I don't know. I'm just preaching. This might be you. There are some Christians who are theologically weak not because they are not reading systematic theologies or biographies about old dead guys. They are weak because their Bibles are closed. Because their prayer life is almost non-existent. They are weak because their walk with the Lord is spiritually immature. Additionally, there are Christians in the church who are weak because they are seeking out the wrong content. The Bible is simply to them not enough to convey matters of faith and practice. Therefore, they cling to issues such as social convictions or political affiliations as practical substitutes for what the Word of God says. And while these arenas aren't bad, in fact, they are good and necessary for Christians to be involved in. The problem is that when they become practical substitutes for the word of God, the gospel is assumed and ultimately lost, resulting in their witness bringing reproach to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, we must contend for our faith. Here is the main idea for the series. Some of you take notes. This is for the series, not just today. Contending for the gospel assumes that the Christian, and if you call yourself a Christian, if you say that you follow the Lord Jesus, then this is for you. Contending for the gospel assumes that the Christian stands assured in their identity and equipped to enter the ring. Though Jesus promises victory, it does not mean that we do not fight. And so this morning, as we begin our time in Jude, what I'd like to do is give you an introduction. I kind of gave you the why as to why we're preaching through this. I want to give you an introduction to who Jude is and why he's writing to the church, and then we'll dig into it. So with that being said, if you just joined us, we're in Jude. We're going to be looking at the first two verses. I'm going to read them, and then I'll pray, and we'll jump into this introduction. Beginning in verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Let's pray. 
Father, we come before you this morning to worship you and your name. To worship the work of Jesus done for us and to worship you, Holy Spirit, as you are at work and present among us. Father, my hope this morning, my hope and prayer is that we come before you empty and eager. Father, this morning, may your word be sweeter than honey. Father, this morning, may your word revive us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, guys ready? All right, here we go. <clears throat> I want to begin with a simple question in light of this introduction, and that question is, who is Jude? All right, so we're going to look at uh, an introduction of who is Jude and why he's writing to the church before we break down these two verses. The truth is that there isn't a lot that's said about Jude. But based on research, many theologians believe that the Jude who is writing this letter is the younger brother of Jesus. If you are new to the Christian faith, that might sound surprising that uh, Jesus would have brothers, but he did in fact have other siblings. He had brothers and sisters. And in addition to that, we need to understand that the Jude who is writing this letter is not to be confused with Judas Iscariot. For Judas Iscariot could not have written this letter because homeboy killed himself after betraying Jesus. Just wanted to throw that out there. Jude was actually a very common name. What Jude is in his time, Rodriguez and Garza is in ours. Right? When you look at the pages of Scripture, particularly in Matthew 13, here is what he records as, the, as people are talking about Jesus. This is what Matthew records. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? It's Matthew 13. While we don't know much about Jude after the Gospels, throughout Acts and on one occasion in 1 Corinthians, Jude is mentioned, but he is mentioned in the cluster that is Jesus' brothers. He's not necessarily mentioned by name. Church history accounts that at one point Jude had two sons and eventually became a grandfather, though we cannot confirm that biblically. In addition to that, there is some speculation as to whether or not Jude, the younger brother of Jesus, actually wrote this letter because of its literary structure and education. But as we dig more and more into uh, the authorship of the letter, one of the main reasons that we can uh, associate Jude uh, with his... Um, uh, as, a, as a brother of Jesus, is not simply because his name is mentioned throughout the Gospels, but in addition to that, he referenced or refers to himself as a brother of James. We've walked through the epistle of James here. He mentions him, and that's incredibly important because we know James to be the younger brother of Jesus. Acts records James as uh, one of the main apostles who oversaw the council in Jerusalem. James was the go-to for men like Peter and Paul. 
In addition to that, as we see that Jude calls himself a brother of James, and as we refer or reference that to Matthew 13, one of the things that you'll notice is that Jude's name is last. Traditionally speaking, the youngest sibling is the one who is named last. We can safely, carefully assume that Jude was more than likely the youngest in the family. He's the baby. I can relate to that. I think I told you the story last week. I'm one of four brothers uh, in my family. I was the blessing. One was born in 71, then 73, then 74, then 1985, right? That's when everything changed. So I can relate somewhat to Jude. Now, the reason I want to talk a little bit about uh, the family of Jesus, the reason I think it's important to talk a little bit about the family of Jesus, particularly when it comes to Jude and when it comes to James, is because of what Mark records in his gospel. In chapter 3 of Mark, he refers to, uh, or he, he, he gives us a, a glimpse of what Jesus' family thought about him. He goes on to say that they said, quote, he is out of his mind. I say that because something happened. At one point, Jude, the youngest brother, the younger brother of Jesus, did not believe that his older brother was the Messiah. And then something happened. A transformation happened to where Jesus went from simply being an older brother to the Messiah, where Jude went from being simply uh, an unbeliever to an apostle, someone who was responsible for the foundation of the church. And so that's one of the things that we're going to be talking about today, transformation. We'll dig into that a little bit more. The next question, as I mentioned, is, well, why is Jude writing to the church? One of the things that I think is important to note is how closely related uh, the letter of Jude is to that of 2 Peter. They were more than likely written kind of close to one another, 2 Peter being first and then Jude. The reason I think it's important is because in the second epistle of, of uh, Peter, he warns the church of false teachers uh, and their coming into the church, whereas Jude writes to the church in present real time, saying that false teachers are actually here and now and within the church. You could listen to Peter, he says it this way, but false prophets also among the people, arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Peter is warning the church of false teachers that will come to the church, come from within the church, but they're not there yet. Jude is writing to the church saying, they are here and within our midst. Jude writes this letter in an effort to exhort the church to contend for the gospel. 
In verse three of Jude, he says it this way, beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude was originally gonna write to them about their salvation. Maybe he was going to write to them to encourage them, but at some point he changes courses because of the news that he has received based on what's going on from within the church. And so he is writing to them to contend for their faith. He tells them that the reason they need to contend for their faith is because, again, false teachers are here. They are within the church. False teachers have disguised themselves as Christians, as believers, and are trying to sway and persuade other believers to follow them and to turn over with them and enter into ways of immorality and ungodly behavior. He mentions this in verse 4. For certain people have crept in. Check it, unnoticed. Certain people have crept in unnoticed by the church who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In this general introduction, one of the questions I began asking myself in prepping for this sermon was, why is this important. By now you should understand that one of the central themes is to contend for the gospel that false teachers will rise from among us, even from this body. I want to refer you back to the thesis of Jude. Contending for the gospel, listen to me, contending for the gospel assumes you're standing secure in your identity. A lot of Christians like to fight. A lot of Christians have a lot of things to say. Some of it good, some of it not so much. And when we hear language like, I want to, or that we are to contend for the faith, some Christians get fired up about that. Yeah, I want to contend. Contending for the faith, Christian, assumes that you are standing secure in your identity first. Therefore, here's the main idea for our time today. Contending for our faith means that we are assured of our identity in Christ first. Say it one more time. Contending for our faith means that we are assured of our identity in Christ first. Contending for the gospel, contending for our faith begins with identity in Christ, not our social convictions or political affiliations or parenthood or your professional career. In our time, we're going to look at three sections of encouragement and of reminders that you and I are so quick to forget and dismiss, and they are an identity reminded, an identity received, and finally, an identity that is active. So let's now look at the verses. Let's look at the first half of verse 1. He opens up, Jude, we now know who he is, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Jude opens his letter by identifying himself as a servant of Christ. Now, if you're taking notes, if you're underlining, if you're highlighting, I want you to underline or circle the word servant. 
The word servant here in the Greek translation is doulos, which means, and it doesn't necessarily translate, it doesn't necessarily translate over to servant, it actually translates over to slave or bond servant. Jude identifies himself as a slave to Christ. I want you to notice the humility in, in, the, in the opening of Jude's letter. He doesn't name drop. He doesn't name drop his brother's name in the sense of like, do you know who I am? He doesn't uh, enter into this letter secure in his authority because he knows a guy, right? That's very valley. You always know a guy who knows a guy. That's not what Jude does, right? Jude opens with humility that is based on what Jesus has done for him. Jude's humility is one of submission to the lordship of Jesus. Jude's humility is to who Jesus is. A slave means two things, and that's where I want us to begin. I want us to begin here because listen to me. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, the writers are constantly saying something to the extent of, let me remind you, brothers. Jesus regularly responds to the Pharisees or even to the disciples. Have you not read? We need to be reminded of our identity in Christ first before we begin to talk about what it looks like to contend because oftentimes what happens is that you and I are quick to forget who we are in Christ and default to who we were before knowing Jesus. And so the first thing I want you to know based on uh, the opening of verse one is Christian, you have been purchased. More specifically, you have first been redeemed. To be redeemed means to be purchased out of. And in the context of slavery, uh, to those who were enslaved and then purchased, they were redeemed. In the context of the work of salvation, we were slaves to our sin. And through Christ, we have been made slaves to righteousness. At one point, we were slaves to unrighteousness. And because of Jesus, we have been made slaves to righteousness. The currency used to buy us out of our slavery and our bondage to sin was Jesus' own blood. Christian, this is where we must park before anything. We must remember who we are because of what Jesus has done for us first. That at one point we were slaves to our sin and now we have been freed from the power of sin and made slaves or servants to righteousness. Even using the language of slaves, that language comes with tension because it's language that might even associate with the horrendous act of slavery, but when you apply it to who you were before Jesus, it is a horrendous act that you were locked up, chained up to your own sin. 
And through Christ, you have been redeemed. You have been purchased out of your bondage to sin to never return. Paul says it this way in Romans 6, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of unrighteousness. The Christian is not only redeemed by Christ, but the Christian belongs to Christ. As one who has been redeemed, you belong to him. You belong to the one who not only died for you and purchased you out of your sin, but who lived for you that you may walk in righteousness and newness. You belong to the one who, uh, who is the Christ, and he doesn't simply make you better, but makes you new and redeemed. To the one who belongs to Christ, he is not or she is not simply given a second chance, but a new identity. The one who belongs to Christ isn't simply trying harder, but is the one who has been given a new heart and a renewed mind. Before anything, church, like Jude, we must adopt a posture of humility and remember who we are on the account of what Jesus has done for us. So Christian, the first thing you need to remember is that you have been purchased. You have been purchased. Moving on to the second section, an identity received. This is the second half of verse 1. In this second half of the verse, we see that Jude includes the work of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which I believe is absolutely beautiful because, again, it is a reminder of God's work done for us. Jude says it this way, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Beginning with the Holy Spirit, Jude tells us that we have been called by him. Theologians call this the effectual calling. The effectual calling could be defined as God calling the sinner to himself through the proclamation of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is, Christian, upon hearing the gospel, it is the Holy Spirit who beckons you to come to the Lord Jesus. Upon hearing the gospel, it is the Holy Spirit who works in you, regenerating you so that you would believe and repent. That leads us to another fancy word called regeneration. Regeneration is simply the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of man, bringing man from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's language of adoption. That is 
referred to when he says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's, that is the seal of authenticity. That is that when we come to know the Lord Jesus, one of the things, one of the roles that the Holy Spirit does is that he seals us in our salvation. It, in, in other words, that seal of authenticity says that we belong to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. There's nothing anyone else can do about it. He has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. The second thing Jude tells us is that you, Christian, are loved by the Father. Before you were even here, you were known and loved by the Father. And in love, he has pursued you to make you his. The Son was sent to live the life that you and I cannot live. The Son was sent to die the death that you and I deserve. And in doing so, the Son removes the fence of separation that is between us and the Father. It is the grace of God that adopts us into the family of God. The Father in doing so, the Father in pursuing you, changes your status. At one point you were an orphan and now you are called son or now you are called daughter. Some of you know my son. I affectionately call him Chungle. Right? Means monkey, can't sit still. Right? I became dad when he was six. Right? But here's the thing Chungle has always been my son. It just took us a while to get together. When it comes to the father, he has always known you, and he's been pursuing you. And he doesn't just find you, he changes your status. He makes you his. You go from being lost to found, from orphan to son or daughter. You go from being someone without family to having a family. Paul says it this way also in Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Christian, you have been called by the Spirit, you have been loved by the, uh, by the Father, and you are kept by the Son. The work of the Lord Jesus, our heavenly brother, reconciles sinners to the Father. It is his work on the cross that keeps us. We cannot be removed from his beautiful work. We cannot be snatched out of his hand. And let me tell you, if you tried, friend, you're just not strong enough. However, I do want to speak briefly to perseverance because that's one of the things that we're going to be talking about throughout this series. Oftentimes, Christians assume that perseverance, yes, in one sense, their view is basically incomplete, that they are kept by God. And therefore, they can do whatever it is that they want to do because they are kept by God. Church, perseverance is a double-sided coin. 
Yes, we are kept by God because of his work done for us in Christ. This is monergistic. In other words, when God saves us through Christ, there is one agent at work. It is the Lord Jesus. It is one agent. And then when we look at sanctification, our spiritual growth, or our perseverance, it is synergistic. That is, two agents are at work. That God, the Holy Spirit, is at work in us, and we are actually following through with what we are growing in and with our, our own faith. Jude opens this letter by saying that we are kept by the Son, and he closes this letter in verse 21 by saying, keep yourselves in the love of God. What does it mean to keep yourself in the love of God? It means that we are to grow in our spiritual walk and discernment. Christian, you must remember that you have received your identity on the account, faithfulness, righteousness, and pursuit of another for you. So we've talked about two things, the identity that we need to remember and the identity that we have received. So what does it look like practically? That's verse two. Jude says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Jude concludes his letter with those three gifts or that prayer. But before digging into mercy, uh, peace, and love, I actually want to focus on another word, and it's the word multiplied. That's incredibly important because what he is saying is, in Christ, you have already been given these gifts of mercy, of peace, of love. However, Jude is praying that the church would receive these gifts in abundance. Not so that you can hoard them, but so that they would pour out of you onto one another and onto the world. If we really want to know how to contend, how to fight, how to stand for our faith, if we really, really want to know how to contend, then we need to know that these gifts are pouring out of us first regularly and daily. These gifts of mercy, peace, and love are an indicator of your identity. So let's jump into them. First one is, is mercy. Christian, you have received mercy so that you would be merciful. Oftentimes when it comes to mercy, it's something that's thrown around flippantly in the church. That's probably why we're so weak. God has withheld his anger from you and poured it out onto his son because he hates sin. Christian, do you hate sin? Or do you just pro and con it? that just because you didn't get the lightning bolt today, it must mean that God is cool with it. That just because someone didn't call you out, you must be good. Christian, do you hate sin? If you hate sin, if we hate sin, then we better understand, or we more better understand what mercy actually is. 
Mercy is not simply receiving what we deserve. It is knowing what we are receiving mercy from. That before Christ, his wrath was over our head. But in Christ, because he is rich in mercy, he has poured out his mercy onto us, making, him, making us his own. Christian, do you hate sin? Earlier this week, uh, during our staff meeting, we opened up our staff meeting with devotions, and we were in Psalm 38. And one of the things that the psalmist writes in Psalm 38 is that he is so overwhelmed with conviction over his sin that he compares it to wounds. And he says that his wounds smell and they are festering and they are getting gross. When you use that analogy, for instance, to an actual wound, when you don't clean a wound, it gets infected smells really, really bad, and it looks really, really gross. That is what the psalmist is comparing his sin to. That he is so riddled with conviction over his sin that he compares it to that of a wound and says, it stinks, it smells, I am infected with my sin. And then he goes on to confess his sin before the Lord because the Lord is his only hope. Christian, do you hate sin. I'm not just talking about the kind of sin where you're like, my bad. My bad. I just won't do that again. I'm talking about sin in the sense of what King David says in Psalm 51, against you, Lord, and you have I sinned. That it grieves you. That your own sin grieves you. I was speaking with a young man earlier this week, and one of the things he said is, I hate my sin because of what I do. That's an individual who grieves and hates sin. He so desperately wants to be more like Jesus. Christian, do you hate sin? Christian, because you have been given mercy, are you merciful? Are you merciful or are you just the hammer? Mercy is receiving or not receiving what we deserve. Oh man, in quiet time, coffee and Colossians, all I want to do is remember the mercy that God has given me. But when it comes to someone cutting me off, or when it comes to someone sinning against me, mercy is out the window. That was for me during coffee and Colossians. And now you have ruined the rest of my day and you just pour out wrath on that person, on your kid, on your spouse, on one another. Or maybe cowardly, you post it on social media. Are you merciful? Here's what Jesus says in, in Luke 6. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So when Jude says, may mercy be multiplied to you, it is not just so that you would hoard it and keep it to yourself. It is so that it would be poured out onto others. The second thing Jude says is that we have received peace by God's grace, the Christian is no longer at war with God. Just like mercy. Do you, ever, do you ever think about these? Here would be my challenge. I want you to think on these this week during your coffee and Colossians time, right? When it's just you and you have your little nook and cranny in the house and you're, you're studying God's word. I want you to look at verse 2. 
Christian, by God's grace, you are no longer at war with God. Remember, your status has changed. At one point, you were an enemy of God. At one point, you were at war with God. At one point, you are, were in rebellion to God. And now, through his mercy for you in Christ, you are no longer at war. You are now a son of the Father. You are now a daughter of of the Father. You are a friend to Jesus. Paired with mercy, do you realize, listen to me, do you realize that you have access to the Father? The Christian knows peace because they have received peace. Therefore, the Christian proclaims peace to those who don't know Jesus. As we contend, we must remember that while we have other convictions in different arenas, we represent a kingdom, and for that, we proclaim the gospel. You have received peace. It is not just the kind of calming peace that we normally talk about. It is the peace like, let's dive into that theologically speaking. You are no longer at war with God. At one point you were. And in Christ, he has redeemed you. And so if you're a Christian, you're like, man, I really don't know how to, how to share the gospel. Well, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Tell them what Jesus has done for you. You know how to do that. The third thing that he says is that we have received love. The Christian is loved because they have been loved by God first. And we know this because he has demonstrated his love in sending his son to die on a cross for us. Dave Bruscus in his book, Dear Son, goes on to say that one of the first identities a child has uh, is that of a son or a daughter. However, that identity can only be affirmed by how the father loves that child. You are loved by God because of what he has done for you. He has affirmed your sonship through Christ and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you can love others. Paul says it this way, God's love has poured out, has poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Christian, you can love others. Not out of obligation, but because of what Jesus has done for you, but because you have been kept, you yourself are loved, and you yourself have been sealed. You can love others. Now that's practically speaking. In addition to that, let me just encourage you. Being kept by the Spirit or being called by the Spirit, loved by the Father and kept by the Son, listen to me, that's happening right now. And some of you have had some hard weeks. Some of you have had some weeks where it's just felt a little discouraging and man, it just feels like you kind of crawled in here and you need that encouragement, right? When it comes to being called by the Spirit, loved by the Father, kept by the Son, that is right now. That's not, hey, chew on this so that when you leave this building, you can come back to that. That is a truth for you right now. And in a moment when we participate in communion, it's going to be a truth that we can touch. 
not just a grace that we remember, but a truth that we can touch. And so as we close, contending for the faith begins with the assurance of our identity. Christian, you have been redeemed, sealed, pursued, and kept by God. I want you to meditate on this truth this morning. I want you to meditate on this truth tonight. I don't care if you need to write verse two over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. That's, that's a spiritual discipline. I want you to meditate on this truth before you post something on social media. I want you to meditate on this truth before you jump on someone's case. I want you to meditate on this truth when there's nothing has ruffled your feathers yet so that when it happens, we respond appropriately. Church, we're going to contend for our faith. We're going to walk through that and we're going to walk through what that looks like practically. But before we do that, we need to be assured of our identity. Our identity in Christ. So, Christian, where do you forfeit your identity? Do you compartmentalize your identity? I'm a Christian at our uh, missional community. I'm a Christian on Sunday. I'm a Christian before I eat my salads. I'm a Christian because I have a, a cross wall on my you know, wall. I'm a Christian because it says so on Instagram or because you, know, you got a fish on your van. Where do you forfeit your identity? Because when it comes to work or when it comes to social media or when it comes to these other areas of your life, your identity is void. Where do you forfeit your identity? Where do you forfeit your spiritual growth? Have you considered, like Jude, humbling yourself? Humbling yourself. Christian, repent of your sin so that you would be reminded of the beauty of God's work for you and allowing that to shape your interaction with one another and the world. And if you're not a Christian, here would be my hope and prayer. My hope and prayer would be that you would come to know the Lord Jesus today, that he invites you to know him. And in doing so, he doesn't offer you a new car. He doesn't offer you more money. He offers you a new heart, a new identity, and a renewed mind. He promises to seal you and keep you. Church, contending for our faith begins with the assurance of our identity. Let's pray. God, we praise you because of your word. You reveal yourself to us in your word. In your word, you remind us of who we are in Christ. You remind us of what Christ has done for us and that we belong to you as sons and daughters. 
Father, as we respond to you in worship through communion, may the truth of who we are ring loudly for us. May communion not simply be the next element in our liturgy, but a meal that we share together as we come together toward a grace that we can see and a grace that we can touch. A reminder that who Jesus is for us is present right now. That Jesus is the hope that we cling to.